Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, That Balloon Dog Didn't Make Itself edition. It's Wednesday, October 1st, 2014. On today's show, Jeff Koons has been an important American artist since at least the 1980s. Now, perhaps with a major retrospective at the Whitney Museum, he is a canonical American artist. We tour the show with its curator, Scott Rothkopf. And then... The story of America's most pliable, most pernicious, and most irrepressible myth. We discuss the self-made man with Slate's own John Swansburg. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And, uh, of course, uh, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. Julia, before we uh, tuck in here and start talking about these uh, topics, we have uh, some business to take care of. What, what's up? We have some very exciting announcements. So next week is our live show in Los Angeles, and we will be joined on stage by not only our favorite script podcasters, John August and Craig Mazin of Script Notes, but also by the incredibly talented Natasha Leone, who's currently starring in Orange is the New Black, which I think I can reveal here is my absolute favorite show on television right now, even though it's not technically on television. It's on Netflix. But she has a wonderful role in it. She's a fascinating actress with a fascinating history and career. I don't know if our listeners heard her wonderful segment on Mark Maron uh, on his podcast, but she's a great talker and we're super excited to talk with her. So LA ticket buyers, go to slate.com slash LA Culture Fest. Sign up to come see us chat up Natasha Leone. You also get a free drinks ticket with your purchase. Uh, and we look forward to seeing you there. Again, that's October 8th, downtown in Los Angeles, slate.com slash LA Culture Fest. Mm-hmm. I'm so excited for Natasha Leone. That show is amazing. I have to binge watch. I say have to. I'm excited to binge watch season two and catch up. But I will add also, I didn't realize that, is it John August who authored the screenplay for Go? Yeah. The Doug Lyman film? That was just a terrifically well-written and well beautifully crafted, uh, clever movie. Very excited to talk to those guys too. It should be a really good show. Yeah, I think we're gonna we're gonna stop being such pretentious East Coast critics and get down and dirty with some creators of the culture that we yak about. Yeah, week. LA industry realness. We need a dose. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> industry realness, come and get us. So that's the Los Angeles live show at the Belasco Theater on October eighth. Doors are at seven p.m. Plenty of time to get there after work, and we look forward to seeing you guys there. And for those of you who prefer effete East Coast yakking. We're also coming to Boston, my hometown, on October 20th. We'll be at the Wilbur Theater, and you can get tickets to that show at slate.com slash Boston Culture. All right, what's next? 
Jeff Koons is the 59-year-old artist best known for turning cheap, mass-produced knickknacks and some would say cheap, mass-produced emotions into gigantic sculptures fabricated under Koons' supervision by 125 or so factory artisans in his employ and sold at auction for tens of millions of dollars. The Whitney Museum is closing its uptown location and moving to the Meatpacking District in Lower Manhattan, and its final show is a Jeff Koons retrospective. That in itself is a statement as loaded as the giant sculpture of a Play-Doh mound, which is the masterpiece of the exhibit. The curator for the Koons show is Scott Rothkopf, and he kindly joined us for a tour that we recorded at the museum. Good. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, here we are at the Whitney Museum on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. We're with Scott Rothkopf, who is the curator of Jeff Koons, a retrospective. Uh, Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for meeting with us. Thanks for having me. Um, we're in front of the work of art that one couldn't help reading about if one read about the Koons exhibit at all. It's uh, the piece Play-Doh. Scott, it's I imagine many of the people who listen to our program have read about the piece and seen a photograph of it. It is nothing like standing Nothing substitutes for standing in front of it. Can you describe for our listeners what precisely we're looking at? Well, you're looking at what appears to be a giant mound of Play-Doh that's over 10 feet tall. But, of course, the trick of the piece is that it's made entirely from cast aluminum that's been painted with a kind of auto-body enamel that has a matting agent mixed in to make it look really um, dense and kind of just like the surface of actual Play-Doh. A lot of people ask me uh, why they can't smell the Play-Doh. It seems so realistic. (laughs) Uh, it's a sculpture that's based on a model, uh, a mound of Play-Doh that Jeff's son actually made 20 years ago. And uh, it's taken Jeff just that long, actually, to finish the piece. I was wondering this when I saw the show this weekend. How did he preserve that initial mound? Did he photograph it or model it or map it out? Yeah, he has photographs of the initial mound as well as uh, sample vials of the Play-Doh from that period so that he could match the colors exactly. It's interesting that Play-Doh's color palette has changed slightly over the last 20 years, and the Play-Doh that you're looking at here actually corresponds to what Play-Doh would have looked like in 1994 rather than today. And Scott, why did it take him 20 years to finish this piece in particular? I know a lot of his sculptures you know, have detail work that takes a long time, but what was it about the Play-Doh that was so time-consuming? Well, there's a variety of factors that go into the kind of long duration about uh, some of these works, and they have to do with technological and fabrication challenges, as well as sometimes uh, funding and financial challenges. In this case, uh, Jeff started working on the piece in polyethylene, which is a plastic that you find in children's toys, and you see in the piece uh, in this room called The Cat on a Clothesline behind me. But... um, he realized that he couldn't get the undercuts and the level of detail that he wanted to make this really craggy Play-Doh edge out of the polyethylene. So eventually they had to actually move the site of fabrication from place in California to one in New York and reconceive of the piece in cast aluminum that's been painted like you see here. So the whole process took a long time. There's so much R&D that goes into these works, uh, a really detail-oriented process, even sometimes trying to invent ways of working that are out ahead of the technology that exists. You know, um, uh, if it's all right to insert this here before we go any further, I want to hear about your interest in Coons, which goes back quite a while, and um, what attracted you to him. And Oldenburg is, of course, a touchstone comparison. There's an attraction repulsion to Jeff's work that seems to be part of the intention of the artist, right? And some people who write about him and respond to him maybe don't credit him with that. And it seems to me for Oldenburg, the th- initial thrill was just blowing something up large on on the scale gag uh, that Dana was talking about. Whereas, to me, Jeff is doing something more, there's a new layer, a new nuance, there's something 
possibly sinister about it? Or, and so I'm just curious about what your history of attraction and, re- and whether it has any repulsion in well, it to his work. Well, my history of attraction did not, uh, at the beginning, contain repulsion. And I was growing up in Dallas, Texas, where there was a, a Borders bookstore near my um, house. And this would have been in 1990. 1994, let's say, when I was in high school, and I found a catalog of Jeff's work from a show that he had at SF MoMA in the early 90s. So I had actually never seen any of Jeff's work in person when I found this book, and something about it just really struck me, the way that his work seemed to capture, I think, a lot in a contemporary culture that I was experiencing as a teenager, but not really understanding anything about the art historical references that he was engaged with, or even... um, the technologies he was using, and somehow this encounter really stuck with me. And I remember a number of artists whose work I uh, learned about at that time, and I still admire, but they haven't kind of stayed with me as a subject of study. And I was able to meet Jeff later on when I was in graduate school, which would have been in the early 2000s, and started to write about his work, uh, get to know him better. And it became kind of a, a dream of mine to do this show. It was so interesting that it had never happened. And uh, a major museum in New York had never uh, mounted a Jeff Koons retrospective, and I feel lucky that I ended up at one, and the timing was right, that Jeff was ready for this show, that I was ready to do it, that it worked for the Whitney schedule, and you know where we were moving in our future downtown. So it's kind of was a, a perfect storm, if I can say that in a way that doesn't sound negative. <laughs> Put him maybe a little bit in art, art historical context. Obviously, he's interacting with Dada. He's interacting with Pop. Uh, Warhol has got to be a huge influence on him. It, you've spoken beautifully to what your history with him is. Put him in art history a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, all of those uh, references are certainly perfect, and Jeff is very aware of the history of art. And uh, if you're looking at the 20th century, certainly Duchamp is a major precedent, the um, invention of the ready-made, the idea that anything that an artist says is art could be art, and you see that in his earliest experiments in the late 70s with found objects, and even through today. Um, Certainly the pop artists of the 60s are major uh, figures in this conversation, whether that's Warhol, Lichtenstein, Oldenburg, artists who took sort of banal or quotidian subject matter things from the media, things from everyday life, and decided to make that a subject of art without maybe all of the kind of translation or interpretation on the most obvious level that you would have seen in earlier depictions of that same kind of material. Uh, I think that Jeff has extended that dialogue. It's interesting to me that in the banality work of the late 80s, the sculptures like Michael Jackson and Bubbles or The Girl with the Pink Panther, uh, these works caused a scandal when they were shown in 1988. And it's almost hard for me to recapture that sense of shock, especially knowing that anyone who was looking at that work at that time would have known Oldenburg's work and Lichtenstein's work and Warhol's. And why would this be so surprising after they'd had 20 years to digest pop art? How had Jeff pushed that boundary even further? And that's something I've I've thought a lot about in the preparation for the show. But that's an amazing question, though. Why did they? Because that's exactly right. There had been decades of seeing work that was in this vein, and yet there's something specific to this work that inspires a different kind of reaction, a surprise, uh, a resentment, uh, you know, some feeling that there's a degree of fraudulence. I don't assign any of these adjectives to this work, but it is part of the response to the work. How much do you think it's actually part of the work itself to inspire that reaction? Uh, I, I think it's, it is a great part of the work. I mean, I don't know that it's part of how Jeff would think about the work or his d- discussion of the work would not involve... Uh, you know, words like disgust or fraudulence, or I can't remember exactly all that you've said, but um, 
I think, you know, what's interesting, if I try to recapture just through reading the reviews from that period in the late 80s, which really was closer to the inception of pop art than we are to that, that moment of the late 80s, almost, and you see uh, some of the critics saying, you know, I haven't seen people this upset since the advent of pop art. And how did this push the boundary? And, and one of the things I think... Uh, that Jeff did is if you accept that let's say Lichtenstein painted a, a comic book or that Warhol had put Marilyn Monroe in a painting or Liz Taylor why is this Michael Jackson and Bubbles more disturbing and I think one of the reasons for that is that uh, the way that Lichtenstein and Warhol let's say imported this iconography into a format like an oil painting that hangs on the wall that was kind of a more accepted medium. Um, Warhol did uh, have a lot of invention in terms of his use of the silk screen, which was not a fine art medium in that way in painting at the time. But Jeff actually went to the purveyors, the, the fabricators of a lot of these kind of kitschy objects, the people who made the Hummel figures and the Yadro. So when you see these images recast in porcelain and um, in kind of carved polychrome wood, they carry this extra level of association that's not just what they're picturing, but the kind of craft and the materials that were embarrassing and problematic to people. And I think Jeff wanted to raise that question about taste. One of my main responses to the show, which surprised me, because I had never spent that much time with any of Kunz's work, I think, except for maybe one or two pieces here or there, um, was how much time I spent thinking about technique and fabrication and the technical accomplishments of the work, almost more so than the subject matter of the work, the obviously bright and evocative colors of the work. My primary response to the show was almost a, like, how did he do that to a lot of the pieces? And it almost cast me sort of back in time into a different... It felt like there were sort of periods if you look back into art history when part of what artists were doing were figuring out new ways to represent things, and perhaps this is a um, shallow stereotype, but it feels like that's less of what the modern art world is engaged with now. And when you stand in front of the um, huge yellow dog that looks like an inflated balloon despite weighing more than a ton, um, that sense of technical wonder almost was more present for me in my response to the show than than thinking about his themes or his subjects or, um, you know, whatever he's saying about the contemporary toy world here in the celebration room full of kids' toys. I think you're absolutely right in sort of questioning or wondering whether this idea of uh, technique in that sense is a more traditional art historical value. And in fact, I would say that one of the, the knocks on Jeff's work by certain schools of critics as is that he's actually overly invested in this uh, kind of technical mastery. And in fact, the whole idea of um, a verisimilitude of a certain kind of skill uh, in making something was actually challenged by the project of modernism over the last several hundred years, that if you look at an artist like Manet, he was taking away uh, traditional ways of painting, Picasso taking away traditional ideas of space. Uh, you finally end up with, let's say, a monochrome painting, which isn't even picturing anything. So there is a narrative um, that I don't necessarily subscribe to, where people would maybe argue that there's a successive uh, generations of uh, removal of skill, and that by putting so much uh, stock in technical prowess and finesse and ideas like mimesis, that Jeff is in fact, uh, you could say he's retarded hair. I don't believe that because I'm actually quite interested in the way that he's pushing the technology to a point that um, not only does it not exist, frankly, in art making, but it doesn't exist anywhere in our culture. There's a, an interesting essay in the catalog where uh, Neil Gershenfeld, who's uh, at the Center for Bits and Atoms at MIT, is uh, quoted and the 
conjecture in this essay is that some of these objects surpass even uh, the production tolerances and standards of the aerospace industry. And that's really an amazing thought for me that an artist would try to uh, not just capture existing technologies in his work, but invent new ones to uh, help him realize as objects things that he has in his head that no one knows how to make. Why don't we, uh, why don't we walk over to the dog? So, you know, this piece you mentioned, the balloon dog, which is, of course, one of the great icons of, of Jeff's, you know, entire career. And it did have a sort of long gestation. And that was in part because when he imagined blowing up this uh, balloon animal to uh, the scale that you see here, uh, it wasn't something that was easy to do as a cast object with this very reflective, shiny surface and color. And one of the things that people love to do... Um, is get down on their knees and look at these twists and these folds, and they can't believe how perfectly rendered uh, that sense of tension is in the object, that, that feeling of inflatedness, that level of detail. And I think that the tension between that level of detail uh, that you see, let's say, in the dog's nose or in the kind of um, almost intestinal aspects of, of you know, its rear and its um, you know, forearms or legs, that uh, there's this tension between that level of detail and the kind of blank abstraction of the surface in which you see yourself. And that proportion is something that plays out in a lot of Jeff's work, like the steel rabbit, like the moon that's also in this gallery, where this idea of blankness versus detail um, and the way that they operate together, I think, is very transfixing for people. Can we walk over to this Persephone sculpture? Sure. Um, one thing that struck me in this room is another of these massive, shiny, um, metallic-looking sculptures, which is a replica of a Bernini uh, sculpture of Hades and Persephone, um, which I happen to have seen the original of, I think, just a few months ago. And Bernini's work is another that's another sculptor where you look at it and you think, oh, my God, how did he do that with marble? It, it, you know, the, just this lightness that he could create in that very heavy material is so striking when you look at his work. And it's funny, this replica reduces that, I'm sure, intentionally, but the, this does not have the same lightness of, of the Bernini original. And I wonder if you could talk about what Kunz is doing here with this replica of someone else whose technical prowess is uh, paramount in his work. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, he's doing a couple of things. For one is, yes, the kind of mother source of this object is the Bernini sculpture uh, that you mentioned. But interestingly, if you compare uh, that work to this one, you see some differences. And that's because, in fact, when Jeff went to find a source for that work uh, for this piece, he actually used a kind of later copy that would have been uh, a ceramic object. And interestingly, uh, many of his works that look like they're uh, riffing on quote-unquote high art, whether it's the sculpture of Louis XIV downstairs or the Venus in this room, in fact, have already been filtered uh, by one remove. So uh, the Louis XIV that I'm mentioning was based not on a Bernini sculpture, but on a fiberglass model that he found in downtown New York. And so this would have been based maybe on a a kitschy kind of object or something a tourist would buy. And so he's looking at uh, already a degree of remove or interpretation. And in his case, I think one of the things he certainly adds to that is... um, this sense of surface that is really extraordinary to me and, and kind of different from the balloon dog and the, um, the uh, 
Venus of Willendorf that we were discussing, what you're observing, that kind of loss of detail is fascinating because he, I think in his most recent work, and this is one of those pieces, is playing a lot with the sense of a focus and resolution. I think a lot about how we scale up images in the world on our iPhones and our iPads and you know, what detail gets effaced, how surfaces either smooth out or become jagged. I feel that in a lot of his new paintings. This sculpture almost feels like it's melting or either in the process of being formed or of the process of dissolving, depending on how you look at it. And I think that um, a little bit that blur of something that feels precise and in a space with us, but also at a kind of remove, has a relationship to other kinds of image cultures that we're experiencing. Well, right now we're in front of the famous sculpture by Coons called Michael Jackson and Bubbles. The book that you mentioned Discovering Coons by, the catalog of the San Francisco exhibit, I was at that exhibit. It was in the early 90s, right? Mm-hmm. I think it was the, possibly the first exhibit when the SF MoMA opened. And I remember seeing this piece, Michael Jackson and Bubbles. I remember exactly where it was sitting in the room and sort of my first encounter with it. And just, as Steve said, how strange it was for there to be a slightly shocking art object in 1991 or whatever that was, something that really aggressively stated its its newness and, and boldness and maybe part of why this still seems so powerful of course now Michael Jackson's death and what happened in the remaining years of his life has changed the meaning of the sculpture as well for the viewer but I think still what makes it so bold is its embrace of just a very uh, crass idea of beauty right I mean it's just embracing guilt and shininess and like something that you would find on your grandma's shelf which is a little bit what this arrangement of the banality sculptures reminds me of a figurine on a shelf Well, I think this idea of that being a shocking sculpture is so true. And uh, it's partly to do, I think, with the idea of the guilt and the ceramic uh, guilt, G-I-L-T, by the way, I should specify, uh, and the ceramic kind of porcelain kitschiness, this, you know, object from the the display shelf rather than the museum. But, of course, the other thing about that piece that is so shocking uh, and remains so, I think, is the idea that Michael Jackson is white in this this work with red lips and that it's, he's so feminine. And that, you know, when, when Jeff made this piece in 1988, Michael Jackson had just begun uh, to lighten his skin, to uh, remake his face through plastic surgery. And uh, in a way, it's almost as though he grew to be more like uh, this sculpture as time went by. And even the fact that um, the pose is sort of borrowed from the Pieta of Michelangelo with uh, Mary and Christ, that that idea of Christian sacrifice that some people maybe associate with what happened to Michael Jackson, his childlike uh, sense of you know loss of self for his fans, that he died for us, let's say. I mean, that's a maybe a, a gross way of uh, exaggerating, but I think there's qualities to that. And it's rare, I think, that an artist is able to capture something in a culture and to sort of hit that bullseye on so many levels um, that are both really fascinating in terms of their truth-telling about our society, but also sort of disturbing, too. And I think that that's why that sculpture has a kind of enduring appeal. I would relate it to, you know, Warhol's portraits of, of Jackie or Marilyn, these images that stay with us. Liz Taylor, those paintings have got more interesting, not less interesting, with all the changes that happened to Liz Taylor in her life. Uh, we, don't, we have very uh, limited time left with Scott, who's been very generous with his time. And, of course, there are huge questions one always wants to ask about Coons. You know, of the type that are always inspired by Warhol about the larkiness, the, the, is it sinister, is it satire, is it, is it of the phenomenon that it appears to be critiquing or separate from it? But we don't really have enough time, so instead we're going to talk about porn. <laughs> Well, I think porn is related to that, uh, or not porn per se, but Jeff's you know interest in his own sexuality and those of sexuality of all of us. Uh, but 
you know, I think this question that, that you raise about, you know, is this work complicit or is it critical is, again, a kind of foundational question of, of modern art, that the modern artist somehow stood apart from society and critiqued it a little bit from the outside, whether that was through this uh, narrative of de-skilling that I mentioned, you know, I'm going to look at your bourgeois values and tell you they're not interesting and invent another way of picturing the world and you know could we see that Warhol was somehow criticizing consumer culture rather than embracing it uh Jeff, for many people, is seen more as uh, an embrace than a questioning. And I think that that's, uh, again, one of the challenges that, that he provokes, you know, in, in all of us. The same thing could be said, certainly, of these works that he made with Cicciolina, who became his wife and was a very famous porn star, as well as a member of parliament. What was he saying about our celebrity culture, our need to reveal ourselves and our interest uh, in people who do that? I was really struck when the Vogue came out with Kim Kardashian and Kanye West on the cover about how their experiment in fame is so related to what Jeff and Cicciolina were up to. Uh, and I think what makes him a great artist in general is the fact that he's constantly questioning and pushing all of these boundaries, whether it's about the market, whether it's about sex, whether it's about you know the difference between what is fine art and what isn't, whether it's about mimesis and the ready-made technology. There's so many areas and arenas, which I talk about in my catalog essay, where he's kind of broken through. And we, some people feel uncomfortable about where he's gone with that, and I think that's, that's okay. Uh, that's part of what makes him an interesting example to consider and one of the great artists of our time. That was my best porn experience of the day. <laughs> <laughs> the day so far. So far, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Scott. All right, well, now we're back in our own studio at Slate, and uh, we're going to debrief a little bit on Coons. Uh, Julia, why don't I start with you? I don't, I don't know if I was blown away by Jeff Coons. I was certainly blown away by Scott Rothkoff, and I was amazed, befuddled, challenged, outraged, placated. What was your reaction to seeing some of this work, which has become, for better and for worse, iconic, up close? Well, I was really struck. I had never seen much Coons in person, I don't think I'd seen mostly photographs of it and the endless Instagrams, which I myself Instagrammed a shot from the show when I went to see it this weekend. And I found myself more impressed and intrigued than I expected to be, particularly by just the sheer technical prowess of the work, as I mentioned in our conversation with Scott Rothkopf, but not moved by it particularly. I mean, I think a lot of his work is technically and intellectually interesting, but I wouldn't want to hang any of it on my wall or put it in my foyer, if whatever whatever you do with a sculpture, if you're the sort of person who has sculptures in your life. It's not work that I would love to like sit with and just groove to for a week or a month or a year. But I had more fun thinking about it than I expected to. I think if you're not a close follower of the art world, you sort of absorb the cheap knock on Coons that he's like a bit of a shallow trickster and there's not much there there, that he's as empty as the balloon animals. And I came away from the work impressed by just the technique of what he was doing and from our conversation with Rothkopf, feeling like Jeff Koons is very lucky to have this particular curator managing his legacy and interpreting it in this way because I thought Rothkopf made a bunch of interesting points about what Koons is up to that were interesting food to chew on. Mm -hmm. But Steve, I'm not sure it makes sense for you to point the conversation to me. I feel like you went swaggering into that gallery as a big Coons detractor and then you you know, you were you were kind of like licking up the the intriguing curatorial wisdom of Rothkopf there. You didn't really tip your hand. Maybe you were just being polite. More than polite. I, I was, you know, suitably impressed by by Scott. He was incredible to talk to and cut a very impressive figure. As for Coons I think my reaction in the presence of 
Scott Rothkopf was actually a completely sincere one, which is it had never occurred to me before that in a world that 30, 40 years previously had gone through the revolution of pop art. And recall that pop art was a very specific response to abstract expressionism, which had been put forward by its chief critic, Clement Greenberg, as upholding this fundamental distinction of not only modern art, but all of art, uh, but especially modern art because of the age of mass reproduction, which is the distinction between true art and kitsch. And kitsch was Clement Greenberg's word, and he used it repeatedly. And this was an unbridgeable divide. And so the first time you had, you know, the prominent pop artists, so help me out, Klaus Oldenburg, obviously eventually Warhol, Rauschenberg, and Lichtenstein appropriating images from billboards, magazine ads, the Brillo boxes, obviously, from mass-produced items, tabloid culture, commercial culture. That was shocking because it collapsed this very distinction. So I understand why in 1960 or 1965, you know, it was an astonishing thing and really challenged the art world in the most fundamental way, like, you know, ontologically challenged what a work of art is. Why is it that Kuhn's coming so much later doesn't feel belated or repetitious? And even if you hate it, why is he able to provoke that hate? I mean, presumably, Dana, and this was what I was stumbling my way towards with Scott, is that you never ignore your own reaction when you're reacting to a work of art. If you find Cezanne beautiful or if you find Van Gogh otherworldly, transcendentally moving, that is what the work is to you in some sense. If you find Kuhn's trashy and provocative and outrageous and in some ways sort of shocking, it's an amazing thing to take note of that response in the context of how late in the history of such gestures he comes. And so I was just trying to put my finger on, well, why? Like, what is it that has to be unique to this artist and these works of art that makes me feel these things and makes a lot of very you know, a lot of people feel this way. What was your reaction? Well, you know, something we also didn't get into that much with the curator, although you did start to point toward it with that one question to him, is Jeff Koons's transparent flim-flammery, right? I mean, the fact that he fashions himself and positions himself as a flim-flam artist. So he sort of pre-hates himself for you, right? And you walk into the exhibit knowing that already. That happens in the porn room, which we didn't really talk about and we didn't look at together, thank God, because I just somehow would have been extremely embarrassed to be staring at close-up genital images with my two fellow gabbers. <laughs> and that also happens in the uh, the posters for his shows. In the, in the cafe floor of the Whitney, there are a bunch of just PR posters for old Jeff Koons shows through the past few decades in which he himself, his young, handsome face, often prominently made up with, you know, kitschy pastel makeup figures in these posters. So the fact that he is this young, good-looking man who's posing naked with his beautiful porn star, former wife, and is himself a commodity is a huge, huge part of his appeal. And that, I think, is different than Warhol. Warhol was this kind of disappearing figure, right, who filmed beautiful people and hung around beautiful people, but did not himself pose naked with porn stars. Well, Warhol Warhol was also on the love boat. He did, you know, funny, weird television cameos all the time. He was both disappearing and omnipresent in a way. But I get what you're saying about Coons and when he was... Well, he wasn't a model, let's put it that way. Jeff Coons is his own fashion model in many of these works. Right. And you use an interesting word, which is commodity. He himself was a commodities trader back in the 1980s. And was he looks in the old photographs from the 80s and the early 90s like an investment banker, which is clearly he's aware of that connotation when he dresses and presents himself that way. He's trying to not look like the garret dwelling, you know, poverty stricken, 
notion of the artist. He's clearly exploding that even further than Warhol ever did. But Dana, you've used my favorite coinage in the history, five, six year history of this program is it comes pre-hated. <laughs> I love that. I don't think I pre- invented pre-hated. I think I read somewhere that Lena Dunham comes pre-hated just recently in some, some article. I'm not one of the pre-haters, but I don't think I, I invented it. But Jeff Koons definitely is one of those artists, right, who brings his own critique along with him. But that persona is so interesting, Julia, right? Because when you read interviews with Koons, they feel as though they're a put on, but you can look as hard as you want and for as long as you want, but you will not see him wink and break character. It's Colbert to the nth power. He never indicates to you that he's a satirist, that he deplores the state of culture and that that's what this work represents, that the Walmartization and the trinketization of consciousness is what his work is about. I mean, Is it that he has so exploded the notion of authenticity that it's goofy to even ask whether there's a degree of authenticity to his work? Or do you care to even, you know, do do you want to posit that question of him as an artist? I mean, as with most of the authenticity debates that we've had on the show over the years, I don't think that's the most interesting question to ask about him. I mean, that was what was striking to me about being in the room with the works was that I was responding to their physicality more than I expected. Like, they're interesting objects to look at, even if they're not transporting and beautiful objects to look at necessarily. And so the whole question of, is he a mischievous trickster puck figure who hasn't broken character all these years, or does he just genuinely think huge balloons are the most beautiful thing he could spend his time creating? I'm not sure I care to know the answer to that question. One thing that did strike me, you know, he's 59, he's still producing work. There's an avid audience and market for it. The pop cultural obsessions that he's critiquing and embracing feel very 80s to me. Mm -hmm. The brightness, the shininess, the kitschiness. I would be really interested to see a show where Coons was engaging with the cultural response to mass production that's happening right now. The sort of, like the Jeff Coons show where he encounters Etsy, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. The fetishization of craft, of the personal. (laughs) Monumental felted mushrooms, I see it now. (laughs) Right? I mean, there's just a, um, his preoccupations feel slightly culturally dated to me. That's interesting. And it would be really interesting to see what his next move might be. Yeah, so I think this raises to me what are the two really compelling questions about Jeff Coons. The first is, he's clearly in one respect an artist of a specific era. The credit bubble era that goes from the early 80s up until four or five years ago when it all burst, you couldn't conceive of this work gaining traction uh, in the art world and in general consciousness at all without the conspicuous consumption that accompanied the the rise of high finance and and the one percenter class. Like it's bound up in that. The question is, is he – what's he going to look like when that era is really behind us in 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years to what degree is are we going to indict the era and include him in the indictment, or are we going to see him as someone who understood what was happening around him in a uniquely sensitive way, which is bound up? And another question is, to what degree, Danny, do you think it's possible he's a secret humanist? So the kitty cat and the two flowers is obviously a cross image, right? There are all kinds of allusions to Christian imagery, the bubbles and Michael Jackson and bubbles as a pieta. There, uh, San Sebastian. Um, right, exactly. To what degree is he, do you think it's possible this work is registering a loss? And the degree of the loss, the totality of the loss, is why the work never breaks character and shows you this humanist deplore. You know, the humanist is why Coons never breaks character, never says, I'm a, I'm a humanist who deplores a mass society 
In other words, the totality of his persona as someone who never breaks character, who always talks in these fake uplifting terms, is itself part of a critique about the totality of this culture and its inability to express what were previously, you know, the central humanist themes. Is that possible or is that that just overreading? I think that's the question to ask about this work and about Warhol's, too, in a way. It is sort of strange, and I still don't quite get the mystery of how he does seem to be doing something new and interesting, and why is he not just Warhol Redux? I think in some of his work, he is not, in fact, doing anything interesting, and there's some things in this show, namely the 2D work, the painting stuff that falls far below the level of the more interesting monumental sculptures, right? But that really is the question. It's like the reflective surface of the the bunny that reflects back at you, right? It's, it's sort of this strangely opaque work where you can't tell if there's a mourning or a loss or satire or a critique, or if there is just like a play with forms, and we're just completely done with caring about the, the interiority, and it's just sort of bringing all of our, our history together into into this play. All right. Well, we, we will leave it open, whether he's a humanist or a post-humanist. It was quite an experience to walk through the exhibit, see the art, and try to th- puzzle that through. So I'm very grateful for having gone. For those of you who've seen it or have feelings either way about Jeff Koons, we would love to hear them at uh, facebook.com slash culturefest. The show is up until October 19th. It's really fun to see a show at the Whitney, too. It had been a few years since I'd walked through a retrospective there, and it's a great space for retrospectives. I've heard exciting things about the Whitney's new space, and the Met is going to be using the Whitney space, which who knows what they'll do with it. That'll be great, too. But um, go, go see it if you're in New York. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I was, it was more interesting than I expected. It's also the selfie capital of the free world now. So <laughs> go take a selfie and send it to us. Yeah, um, we want to see you in front of globs of Plato. <laughs> All right, moving on. When Americans were surveyed in 2009, 39% of respondents said they believed it was quote-unquote common for people born into poverty to become rich. And 71% said that personal attributes like hard work and drive are the greater determinants of success, greater than, say, the circumstances of your birth. And yet the facts fly in the face of this. Economic mobility is greater in Canada, Denmark, and France, yes, in France, than it is in the United States. So, writes John Swansburg in his new and wonderful piece about the self-made man in America. John, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I should say you're deputy editor of Slate. I am. My editor at Slate. I'm going to quote a little bit more of you, and then we can dig into this wonderful piece. The yawning gap between the dearly held ideal of the self-made man and the difficulty of actually improving your station in America, particularly if you're poor, made John wonder about the utility of the rags-to-riches story. Is this a healthy myth that inspires us to aim high with the implication that possibly it's, it's, it's a, a kind of specter that hangs over the society and has become more inhibiting than helpful? John, you begin your piece with a kind of tour de force about your own background. Why don't we start there? Okay. Well, that's sort of the origin of my own interest in the mythology surrounding the self-made man. I am the son of a guy who I've always thought of as being a self-made man. I think thinks of himself as a self-made man. Uh, my dad was born in East Boston, uh, was not truly impoverished the way too many Americans are, but was definitely a working class guy, the son of a truck driver, uh, was himself a roofer, kind of barely graduated from high school, didn't go to college, and sort of struck out on his own as a, as a roofer. And being a roofer in the 1970s, I don't think roofing was ever glamorous, but it was particularly rough trade back then. Um, you know, you're basically pouring hot asphalt on roofs in the harsh New England conditions. So he, you know, he's and then he's a guy who sort of succeeded in, in roofing, kind of managed to make a little bit of money and save it and buy his own roofing company and turn that into a successful concern. And then he went into real estate and bought up a bunch of ugly industrial buildings and made money doing that. He's kind of one of these guys who's always found a way to 
to kind of uh, turn a profit at whatever he did. And I always admired that and and thought it was it was amazing that he he sort of improved himself uh, by dint of his hard work. And I think he always felt like that was something that he accomplished and therefore anyone in America could accomplish if they worked as hard as he did uh, and put their mind to it. And that's always been a tension for me just as his son, because I don't necessarily share that belief that, that anybody who has the kind of requisite qualities of industry and thrift and drive can do what my dad did. I think um, I was always somewhat skeptical of that, yet at the same time completely impressed and wowed by the fact that he had done it. So I, I had that kind of conflict within me and I wanted to investigate it in this story. So uh, one thing we can reveal to our listeners is that a great way to procrastinate at Slate, a great way to not do your work is to get John Swansburg to start talking about his dad. <laughs> I think like we all know that a Jack Swansburg story is a, is a great story to hear. So, you know, you faced an ornery subject in your dad somewhat. I'm curious to know what it was like to profile him in a way for this piece and what, if anything, you learned about him or about the the narrative about him you idolized as you grew up. Yeah, it was really fascinating uh, writing about my dad, who is, as you know, as you well know, I love telling stories about him. He is a very colorful character. As I write in the in the opening of the piece, he talks about his balls a lot. Uh, he's often sort of reflects things through his testicles. Like when, <laughs> and they uh, tingle when he comes across a good real estate deal. Exactly. When you ask him sort of how he knows, you know, how to buy or not buy you know, a piece of industrial real estate that to look at it, you would never know, is this a good investment? And my dad tends to make these judgments seemingly on the fly. I once asked him, you know, how do you do this? And he says, you know, when I'm interested in a building, I drive up to it. If my balls tingle, I buy it. <laughs> Otherwise, I don't. <laughs> Which I always like cherished as an anecdote. Uh, I feel like it's very captures very succinctly uh, his kind of earthy turn. Poor of Richard, phrase. step aside. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> but as I, as I write in the piece, like I think that that in a way one of the challenges was getting past that because like that's my salt of the earth dad being my salt of the earth dad, and it's but it's it's a sort of a cage, cagey bit of false modesty. I don't think that his balls really tingle when he uh, knows whether to buy a building. I think he typically has figured out a, w- a way of understanding the market for real estate or refurbished golf balls or paving equipment, whatever business he's been in, stake. And he just sees the world in a different way. And he he does work harder on deals, I think, than anybody else. So he does sort of apply both a, a kind of gift for business and then also some of the old Franklin virtues of, of hard work and diligence. And that's sort of the source of, of his success. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, we should say that the bulk of the piece is tracing the evolution of this myth through six representative figures, not one of whom is not your father. You start with your father and then move on to these iconic figures in American life. The first one of which naturally, of course, has to be Ben Franklin. And ben Franklin. So I have to say there's just a wonderful exchange between you and your father over Ben Franklin. Why don't you tell us that story? Uh, sure. So, I, you know, one of the things, as you say, I, I, in this piece, I, I ended up kind of searching for the origins and the evolution of this myth through the lives of these Americans, uh, many of them famous, like Franklin and Carnegie. And I became curious whether my dad knew any of this mythology or whether he just sort of the idea of the self-made man just kind of seeped into his head from the culture. And so I asked him one day uh, when we were spending time together if he had ever read Ben Franklin's autobiography, which to my mind, and I think many others, is the original kind of foundational document in the history of the self-made mythology. And my dad said, no, I've never read it. Uh, And then he sort of reached around uh, behind his back and tapped his back pocket and said, but Ben Franklin and I are well acquainted. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very Jack Swansburg uh, kind of thing to do. It's it's such a wonderful moment. 
So, John, what you do with Ben Franklin and with the myth that has sprung up supposedly from Ben Franklin's autobiography about the self-made man is so great. And I wanted you to talk us through it a little bit. I mean, essentially what you do is go through and take apart the pieces of this myth and see how much of it Franklin never actually said and how, in fact, the, the image that he tries to put forth in his autobiography of being a paragon of moral virtue and industry and temperance and frugality and all these things that he believes in have very little to do with the values that we now associate with self-made manhood. Yeah, it's one of the things that I found really interesting in the course of doing my research, which is that there are a lot of self-made men who do believe in a version of this story, and they often set out to tell that version of their story, often because they feel like their experience could help other Americans achieve success. But very often in these important texts in the self-made man mythology, what the author sets out to do ends up getting being kind of forgotten by his readers later on. And Franklin is definitely an example of that. I mean, he, his autobiography was not written in an attempt to create the self-made ethos and encourage uh, Americans to all go out and try to make a bunch of money. Franklin did recognize that making money was an important step in his own life because he was successful enough as a printer that it allowed him in the second half of his life to dedicate himself to science, which he valued greatly and was obviously made important contributions to during his lifetime, and public service uh, to Philadelphia, to the uh, young nation of America. And he felt like those contributions were the most important thing that he did, but they were predicated to some degree on his success in business. So he said in his autobiography, let me tell you how I made all this money as a printer because it might help you succeed in your business, at which point then you can retire and do all these other things. You should improve yourself morally. You should give back to your uh, to your city and your nation and the world. And that was, I think, what was most important to Franklin were those were his uh, efforts at self-improvement and, uh, and public service. Uh, but his autobiography was published a year after he died. And it appeared in America at a moment when the country was rapidly uh, industrializing. There was all this economic opportunity. And the parts that Americans wanted to read were, hey, what's that part about how I make money? <laughs> that was a thing that people remembered. And so his story kind of took off in this way that I don't think he intended or would have really even understood. And that happened like within 10 years of his of his death. And one of the very fun things about his story in particular is that because it was posthumously published, his autobiography was uh, handled by his grandson, William Temple Franklin, who made some very important little editorial tweaks to the text that uh, emphasized the degree to which Franklin had been uh, self-made. Franklin himself had sort of really labored over these sentences. I don't, he didn't want to brag about how successful he was exactly. And Temple Franklin, his literary executor, kind of fudged the language to make it seem even more remarkable, like I really just pulled myself up by my bootstraps. Another great point you make, speaking of bootstraps, which is such a simple thing when you think of it, is that the origin of that term, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, was precisely to denote something that is impossible to do and not sort of pulling yourself out of difficulty. So we've basically mutilated that expression and turned it into this impossible demand. Right. Right. It's, that was this hilarious irony that I discovered kind of late in the process that I'd always just accepted, oh, that's like this old-timey phrase that means, you know, succeed uh, through your own hard work or self-reliance. But in fact, for 100 years, I think from like the 1830s to the 1930s, that phrase meant what it should mean because if you've ever tried to pull yourself up by the straps in the back of your boots, you realize – you can't do it. It's like, try, you know, just get down on the floor and try pulling yourself up by your shoelaces. You're There's not going to go anywhere. There's a great gif in your piece illustrating the impossibility <laughs> Yes, yeah, so I have to give credit well. to Lisa Larson-Walker, our photo editor, for uh, for shooting herself attempting to pull herself up by her bootstraps oh, and failing. Oh, that was the photographer herself. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One thing I really love about the structure of this piece, John, is how you trace the evolution of this idea and our cultural fascination with it over time. But I'm curious, just for the high-level view, what struck you or surprised you most about how the idea appealed to Americans 200 years ago and, and how that evolved 
in the in the following centuries. Well, one of the things that was really interesting in the course of my research is I when I undertook the the piece, I wasn't certain that. Uh, there was an evolution. I wanted there to be, I think, as a, as a writer, but I wasn't. I didn't know enough about the subject to to know for sure. And I worried that the self-made man was just this kind of monolithic idea that had been set down essentially by Franklin in 1791 and really hadn't changed all that much. But it was actually really exciting to discover that, in fact, the idea is is very much alive and I think has evolved and and grown over time. And that every generation kind of reinvents the idea for itself, uh, often because of the opportunities that exist in America, but also because of the anxieties that we have about the, whether or not this is even possible or, or whether it's, it's... I think it's always been possible, and I think it's still possible, but it's not common or it's not as common as we'd like it to be. So one of the things that was interesting is that you know Franklin sets down a version of the self-made ideal that is, I think, one that we uh, have probably... Most of us have read about in, in grade school. It's He sort of sets up the classic Puritan virtues that he, uh, he had made sort of more popular through his um, uh, almanac, which are, the, you know, the typical work hard, save your money, penny saves a penny earned, like all the, all the kind of maxims that we associate with Franklin were the, were the ideals that he set forth. But then just 100 years later in the Gilded Age, Andrew Carnegie in his autobiography really describes a very different kind of self-made man. I mean, for him, working hard actually wasn't that important. He loved to basically knock off after lunch and go uh, listen to music and better himself through the arts. Um, so I don't think Franklin would really recognize himself in Carnegie. I mean, their, their ideas are very different. And the self-made ideal in the Gilded Age is is very different than it was in the early 19th century. I mean, for one thing, you have vast amounts of wealth accumulated into the hands of just a few men, and it becomes kind of impossible to say with a straight face, oh, if you, if you work hard in one of, like, Carnegie's steel factories, surely you will rise and become, you know, a, a, wealthy, and a wealthy man and a great contributor to society. It's like, no, you're working a 12-hour day in Pittsburgh, and when do you have time to, A, better yourself, or B, advance? Um, and so different avatars of the self-made man appear, and the self-made man becomes more rapacious than he was in the early 19th century. So the idea has changed over time in lots of interesting ways. Yeah, I like how the Gilded Age figures that you write about, like Carnegie and Rockefeller, I mean, they, they almost sound in a way like Reagan-era politicians, right? The way that they're imposing this bootstrap narrative on a story that, in fact, is precisely what makes that impossible for the, for the masses of people. Right. And what's complicated about them is that they actually did live it. So they, they speak with a little bit of authority. They, both of them came from, from meager means and became the two richest men in America. But then they, descri- you know, they say, well, if you, if you work hard, you can do the same thing that I did. Or if you follow these prescriptions, you can do the same thing that I did. Right. It's the is- imposition of of a prescriptive narrative when, in fact, the most they could hope for is a descriptive one about their their own luck and exactly. their, own, their own history. But I also wanted to talk about your discussion of Horatio Alger, who's another writer that we remember as having a certain business philosophy that has come down to us as his name, essentially. The name Horatio Alger now means to us, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And you trace a little bit of his history and how contradictory his own story was to that narrative. Yeah, I mean, this is probably the most shocking thing that I found in my in my research, the story of Horatio Alger, the man, which is totally fascinating. I mean, he, I, he, I think we all know his name. We, you know, we, we hear a rags to riches story and we say, oh, that's Alger-esque, but I don't think anyone reads him anymore. And I think even fewer people understand who he was. Yeah, uh, I, th- I, my, I speculate that half the people who know the name Horatio Alger think that that's the character and not the author. I think you're right. People I mean, have forgotten it's Ragged Dick. No, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, that, uh, there, I've came across a lot of writing on the internet that suggested that people were confused about whether Alger was the author or the character and what, what they sort of thought that Alger himself had lived 
a rags to riches story as opposed to writing about them. There's a lot of confusion about Alger. And it turns out that his his story is far more sordid than anything I could have ever imagined. I mean, he was born in Chelsea, Massachusetts. Uh, he was the son of a Unitarian uh, minister, kind of tried his hand at the writing life, wasn't very successful, had a few things published here and there, decides to go into the ministry himself, gets set up on Cape Cod uh, in his own parish. And then uh, it's, there's a decent amount of evidence suggesting that he practiced quote-unquote evil deeds on young boys in his parish in Cape Cod and was basically caught doing so um, by the people of the town. And uh, the church found out about it. Uh, They basically decided to cover it up because they didn't want – they decided it was better for – to basically ship Alger out of town than to make a a big thing about it. So they never got tried for any of this in in the courts. Uh, It's sort of actually kind of a scary uh, echo of later church events in Boston uh, more recently. But uh, Alger basically flees Massachusetts for New York City because leaving behind this awful story of having possibly – molested kids uh, in in uh, Massachusetts and sort of starts his new career as a writer in New York and starts hanging around with little boys in New York City and, and taking down their stories, particularly little boys who were um, on the street and working as boot blacks or newspaper salesmen and, and really were sort of like the lower lowest tier of, of uh, young uh, New Yorkers who didn't sort of strive and succeed as the boys in his stories ultimately did. So that alone was just surprising to hear that, as you say, Steve, like I think we, people hear Alger, they, they imagine some wonderful, you know, rags to riches story starring the Monopoly man. But it turns out it's these stories that were written by this guy who had this really um, dark uh, history. And then the stories themselves turn out to be, I think, pretty different than what Certainly, what I, than what I imagine they would be. They're not really rags to riches stories. The the boys in, in uh, Alger's work do start out poor, but they don't become rich exactly. They, the books follow this very strict pattern, which is very particular to its time and particular to Alger's own weird hangups. I mean, the the story essentially is poor boy who ha- demonstrates some of the old Franklin virtues of industriousness and self improvement. Wanders around town, meets people, meets a wealthy benefactor, always an older gentleman who buys the boy a suit, sets him up in a respectable job, and and typically like sets him on the path to respectability, but not necessarily great riches. And that's the sort of Alger formula, and it's not really what we what we think it is. And it's less romantic, and also maybe more accurate, which is that you sort of need weird luck and coincidental connections and strange circumstances to fall your way, possibly for untoward reasons. <laughs> and and then you might have some shot at maybe getting somewhere. Yeah, it's it's funny, like the when you read Alger now, like you just you're rolling your eyes on every page because the like the strokes of luck that befall these boys who are the heroes are completely ridiculous. Yet at the same time I think you're exactly right, Julia, that at least Alger was sort of honest about the role that luck can play in people's rise. I mean, I think that someone like Franklin would say, you know, for all Franklin's genius, he was also incredibly lucky. I mean, he had a bunch of people uh, cross his path during his life who really helped him establish himself in Philadelphia and become the successful printer that he was. That's not to take anything away from from Franklin, who I probably would have succeeded no matter what, but I think a lot of successful people do admit that that luck plays an important role, and Alger puts that right in the forefront. I mean, the, everything that happens is luck, and uh, or as, he's, as he calls it, luck and pluck. It's a combination of the two. So where where does that land us today? I mean, you're, you're, one of your final characters is a woman, Sophia Amoruso. Obviously, questions of gender and race figure into this. The you know, perhaps not surprisingly, the first batch of these that you talk about are white men, which makes sense given the history of this country and the opportunities it's afforded to various sorts of people. But what did you find when you looked at the self-made woman? 
Well, so in the case of Sophia Amoruso, I thought she was really fascinating because so she's recently written a memoir, came out in the spring. And, and just for background, Amoruso is the founder of an online clothing company called Nasty Gal, uh, which is wildly profitable, a huge darling of the business press. And uh, she basically started out in the mid-aughts selling vintage clothing she bought at Bay Area Salvation Armies on eBay. So she basically figured out a way to make a decent amount of money selling vintage clothes on eBay and, and was sort of gaming that system in a way that others weren't. She was, I think at the time, a lot of vintage clothing sellers on eBay were like, would take a picture of, you know, a Golden Girls tracksuit and just sort of like on a like sad hanger that was like, you know, suspended from a sad closet door and just didn't look very good. That's still your average eBay fashion (laughs) photo. (laughs) So Amoruso had the insight, which seems obvious, but at the time obviously wasn't, uh, that if she put these clothes uh, on attractive models and styled them, that they, that she could sell these uh, wares for a higher price. And she, she started making a lot of money on eBay and basically transformed this eBay operation that she ran out of a pool house into a company that now does in excess of $100 million in sales every year. And she's an incredible um, story. Uh, and so she, she wrote her, uh, her memoir. She's 30 years old, all of 30 years old. And I read it this spring, and I was struck that um, the book is called Hashtag Girl Boss, uh, and it's written in this very chatty, millennial um, tone. And, and on its face, it does not seem anything like say, the work of Benjamin Franklin. But when I read it, I started to notice that like all of her advice uh, for the girl bosses of tomorrow, to whom the book is explicitly addressed, sounded a lot to me like the lessons from the good old self-made man of the 18th century. I mean, she tells her readers to, uh, to work hard, uh, to be willing to do any job. That was an old uh, Carnegie lesson, actually, which is, you know, if you show up in a job and the person who is supposed to sweep the floor isn't there that day, like the aspiring, you know, titan of tomorrow will pick up the broom and start sweeping his or herself. And, and you know, I think um, Emma Rousseau subscribes to that as well. And just throughout the book, I felt like she, there were these interesting echoes of the old school um, self-made man prescriptions, but written in this way that was designed to appeal to uh, particularly young women of today. And uh, I thought it was really interesting. And I think that uh, what Amoruso is doing, or my reading of it, is she's basically trying to carve out a space in the traditional heroic narrative of the self-made man for young women. I mean, she, she lived a version of this story, but the reality is that it's still exceedingly rare for a woman to run her own company. And I think one of the sort of ambitious things that Amoruso is doing in this book is trying to change that, to encourage women to grab hold of this entrepreneurial narrative. And, and my reading of the, of the present day is that while I think there's a lot of skepticism about the reality of the self-made narrative for men um, because of the lack of economic mobility that Steve described at the top and the income disparity that we all are reading about constantly, I think the ideal still holds a lot of allure for the people who haven't yet to live it in American history, that I think it's still more appealing to to women because they've been left out, to black Americans because they've been left out. I feel like if, this, if the narrative is going to be reinvented once again in our own Gilded Age, it will likely be by these people who feel like, you know what? It may be less and less true that you can go from rags to riches, but we never got to live that story. And we want, our, we want to be able to live that story. We want to be able to put our time in and run our own companies. And so I think that that may be the future of the self-made man, that it will open up to uh, the people who have not ever had a chance to participate in it. And that's something that's happened in the past. I mean, the people who kept it alive in the 20th century were the great wave immigrants who ostensibly had no chance at, at uh, advancement and then, of course, uh, you know, found a way 
uh, to do it. And the sort of up from steerage story became the dominant strain. So that's my sort of hopeful dream of the future of the self-made man that it'll be kind of captured by this... Uh, the by self-made human. The self-made human. <laughs> it'll be the truly uh, open to all that may be too pie in the sky. But, uh, but, you know, I do struggle with this question that you raised at the top, Steve, about whether this is a the self-made ideal is a good thing or a bad thing. And I'm, I'm honestly, I'm torn about it. I think there is a way in which it is pernicious in the sense that if you believe that anyone can make it if they work hard enough, then when you don't make it, it makes it seem like you just didn't work hard enough. And it doesn't take into account all the ways in which society can be pushing back against your your ambitions. But at the same time, it's I like that I live in a country where there is uh, this hope that anyone can succeed and that we champion these people who come up from the from the lowest rungs of society and that that's, that's our ideal, not like some, you know, aristocratic ideal. So, uh, you know, it's a, I have mixed feelings about it. Uh, so interesting. Okay, the piece is The Self-Made Man, The Story of America's Most Pliable, Pernicious, Irrepressible Myth. Its author, of course, is John Swansburg, Deputy Editor of Slate. John, will you stick around and endorse with us? I'd be happy to. Lovely. Dana Stevens, what do you have? Okay, so as promised a couple weeks ago that I was going to do minimalist endorsements for the next few weeks to keep everyone from being barraged with an onslaught of too many things to do. So my minimalist endorsement for this week is, this is a where have you been all my life endorsement. If there ever was one, I can't believe I just discovered this, but it's the Merriam-Webster Word of the Day podcast. Do you all subscribe? No. So Merriam-Webster Word of the Day, I had been getting via an email for many, many years, and then now I follow them on Twitter. I knew about the Word of the Day phenomenon at Merriam-Webster, but I just didn't realize that they do a two-minute-long podcast every day in which Peter Sokolowski, who's written for us at Slate before, who's a longtime editor at Merriam-Webster and a language guy, walks you through the word of the day. And even if you know the word of the day, which is the case for me, maybe 50% of the time, if I'm lucky, you're going to learn something new in this two-minute podcast. He goes through the etymology, through usage, history. There'll be a great quote, usually from a recent, some recent article or, or book using the word. You come out with this great sense that like he's he's authoritative about language, but he's not authoritarian or kind of prescriptive about it at all. And you just come out of it so happy to listen to that word. So sometimes I'll, I'll do it as a little aperitif to other podcasts, just listen for two minutes. But other times, I'll just take a dog walk and listen to 10 words of the day in a row. It's great. 20 minutes, you've got 10 great, 10 great words, and I love it. Merriam-Webster's Word of the Day podcast. That's fantastic. Julia, what do you have? Uh, well, I'm a huge fan of John Lanchester, who's a British novelist and critic and yeah. just amazing writer. He has a book coming out very soon called How to Speak Money, and it is the upshot of his work starting to learn more about and understand economic and finance speak. It's research that he did in part for his most recent novel, Capital, uh, where I think some of the characters worked in the city of London, and he felt like he had to really understand the world in order to depict it properly in his novel. Um, But then he also started pursuing it journalistically and writing some interesting essays about various business figures and and other uh, economic forces over the last few years. And so he's put it all together in a book, which is one part introduction, meditating on why it's so hard to understand how money experts talk about money if you're not a money guy or gal. And then one part lexicon where he kind of gets into the nitty gritty and explains some of these terms. And the introduction is just one of those fascinating, clarifying, lovely documents where it puts its finger on various confusions and misperceptions you've had and explains to you why you've had them and how you might one day no longer suffer them. And it's a joyful read. So How to Speak Money by John Lanchester. It's a great endorsement. He's been doing superlative work for the London Review of Books in this vein. You know, it's that genre of writing of someone who's supremely smart in a completely different way 
from the subject they're writing about, right? He's just not a financial guy, so far as I know. He doesn't have a financial background. He has a literary background, and yet he brings this totally fresh sensibility to it so he can see much larger and more consequential patterns. I mean, there's just one riff he goes into in one of those LRB articles where he just says, like, one of the reasons finance has hypertrophied over the past generation and become this completely unapologetic beast is the fall of communism. And he said not because there was anything at all intrinsically admirable about life behind the Iron Curtain. There wasn't. But what it was, it was a standing challenge to capitalism to be its best self or lose a public relations war, if not a Cold War, to this other way of living. And with no competition, with no mirror, with no one sitting there saying, you see, you are hypocrites and you are worse than us. Uh, we've become these kind of unapologetic you know, monsters uh, for capital. Anyway, there we go. John Swansburg, what do you have? So I have a vaguely self-made man-related uh, endorsement. It's a song I can't get out of my head. It's called Tuesday. The act is has the name I Love McConan. I hope I'm uh, pronouncing that correctly. Uh, I've had this song in my head for a little while now. It's actually in Toronto the weekend before last. And uh, just a brief aside, I, I would posit that no recording artist has owned a city as dominantly as Drake owns Toronto uh, in the history of music. I, I ha- was at a bachelor party. I was out at clubs two nights in a row, and they, all they play is Drake, and the crowd goes wild. They'll like, play a Drake song, everyone will dance, they'll play another song, and everyone will sort of mope around or drink vodka, and then they play a Drake song, and everyone goes out and dances. It was very charming to see <laughs> like how beloved Drake is in his hometown. Um, and this, this artist, I Love McConan, put out this kind of sort of melancholy um, club track called Tuesday, and apparently Drake heard it and really liked it and uh, got in touch with his representation and said, let me drop a cameo on that and do a remix. And so there's now a version where, with Drake singing on it, which I heard a million times in Toronto. And I, I really like this track. It's basically the idea is the, McConan, the, the singer, is talking about how he's so busy working every day of the week, including Saturday and Sunday. The only night he can go out to the club is Tuesday. What day are we recording, John? I, well, I know. I'm thinking <laughs> my big piece came out today. I, maybe I'll just hit the club tonight. I, I bet you they're playing this song on Tuesdays at the hottest clubs now, and people are going wild. Because is there other is there another anthem to Tuesday other than <laughs> Ruby Tuesday, which isn't really about a, the day of the week? So anyway, I really actually do like the song. It doesn't. It gets inside your head in a way I think you don't anticipate because it's not catchy uh, ostensibly, but it, it worms its way in. As long as they can get Rebecca Black's Friday out of all of our collective <laughs> yeah. heads, then that seems like a like a boon to yes, society. Yes, indeed. I recommend Tuesday. Worthy. Um, Okay, so I create this huge uh, Spotify playlist of, you know, modern rock and roll songs, up to thousands and thousands of titles. I tend to throw things in pretty promiscuously, so it has a ton of music that I'm not that familiar with. Love just putting it on on shuffle, listening to it, and every now and then something comes up and I run over to see what it is because I love it so much. It turns out over and over and over again, I mean, I've loved this band for now in excess of 10 years, but I've just never put it together in my head how much I love them and how... You know, it's just clear that they're just truly one of the great rock bands of the last, you know, decade or so. But um, the other day I was, I heard one track in particular and I thought, who is this? This is just exactly what I want my rock and roll to be. And it was a song called Blame It on the Tetons by Modest Mouse. And uh, I just love Modest Mouse. is just a great, one of the truly great rock bands. And it's from their album, Good News for People Who Love Bad News, which is a good record. So my endorsement is that song. You should check it out. It's a wonderful tune, but also just, if you don't know their music, I'm sure most of you do, but if you don't happen to, they're a band for all seasons. They're a great rock band. Outro battle. 
<laughs> I know. I don't know. It is Tuesday. Just saying. <laughs> but the show goes up on Wednesday. That's we fair. have to wait, wait a ways. Maybe, maybe I can do a mashup. <laughs> uh, John, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, it was my pleasure. Your thanks for having me. Pieces of triumph. It's really good. Julia, thank you as always. Total thanks, pleasure. Steve. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Josephine Livingston. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. And our Twitter feed is Slate Cult Fest. So for Dana Stevens and Julia Turner and John Swansburg, thank you so much for joining us. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and we'll, we'll see you soon. You know she loved me one Wednesday When the sun was sinking low Ooh, She loved me that Wednesday evening When the sun was sinking low My baby don't know how she hurt me She made me feel so bad